Like I said, I uh, went to Berkeley College of Music years and years ago, too many years ago uh, to remember now. But I remember actually when I was in seminary, I went back to Boston. I, you know, even though I was a pretty poor seminary student, I actually had more money in seminary than I ever did when I was a college student. Uh, I'm sure some of you can relate to that. And so I decided I was still single at the time. And so for spring break one year uh, during seminary, I decided to go back to Boston and do all the things I never had money to do when I was a college student. So I went to a Celtics game. Now I went to college in the mid 80s, graduated in 86. And there was no way you could see a Celtics game in the mid 80s. That was the glory years. But in 1993, 1994, um, it was easy to get Celtics tickets. So I got to go to a Celtics game. It was great. I got to go see the symphony. Symphony Hall was just down the street from, from uh, Berkeley, but I'd never been able to afford to go to the symphony, but I did that. I got the Little Zagat's restaurant guide, and I went and just visited whatever restaurants I wanted to, and I went to used bookstores and did all the kinds of things I wanted to, and it was a glorious vacation. But part of that time, I also went back to Berkeley College Music. When I was a senior there, a couple of us started a Christian fellowship, and it really grew um, in a lot of ways and was still going on in the mid-90s. I think the group still meets. So I contacted some of the leaders that were part of that group, and I said, I, you know, I'm coming back. I'd love to come speak to the group. So I was over at Berkeley, and the, the Berkeley College of Music was an old hotel. It actually burned down, and, the, you know, it got gutted by fire in the 40s. A bunch of people died, and then Berkeley bought it and turned it into their main dorm and their classrooms and all that kind of stuff. So it had this big hotel lobby, and as I was there in the lobby... I, I noticed there kind of at the front desk that they had a student newspaper now. They never had that when I was there. And so I picked it up, and I remember reading some of the articles um, and some of the advertisements in it, and I was struck, I was struck by some of the views expressed about sexuality and about truth or the lack of truth. And I remember distinctly thinking, wow, this place has become so pagan. This place has become so pagan. What happened to my, to my school? And then, I guess it was a few days later, I was looking uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, and I came across this passage, which really struck me. Now think about what it means to live like a pagan. It may not be something you feel is relevant to you. It's often the kind of thing that we think about, well, there are those people outside this, uh, you know, the group of Christians. The people outside there are the ones who live like pagans. But I would submit to you, that Jesus is addressing this passage in Matthew 6 to his followers. Now, they may not all be people who have fully embraced him. Often, you know, in every age, including the time when Jesus walked this earth, there were always people who were following him who had fully embraced him and other people that were a different place on that spiritual journey. So if you're kind of somewhere along the line the spiritual journey, I certainly don't assume that everybody here has fully embraced Jesus. Never assume that. But these are people that are following Jesus, wanting to know more about him, and he turns around and addresses them as people who are living like pagans, which is a pretty remarkable thing. Um, And so I want us to look at this passage and look at what does Jesus say it means to live like a pagan, and why does that matter for us? And more importantly, what does he tell us here that actually will help us to live like his children? rather than to live like pagans. So if you have a Bible, look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 25. Now this is a passage that will be familiar to you, but you may not have ever noticed this little phrase about the pagans. And I would submit to you it's a really, really important phrase. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? 
Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these words from Jesus. We pray that you would help us not only to understand them, but to take them to heart. And Jesus, may you open our eyes to see how beautiful and believable you are. And may that cause us to be able to rest rather than to worry, to trust you rather than to try to trust ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to live like a pagan here according to Jesus? See, we often in in Christian circles associate it with sort of sexual deviation or worshiping the animals or the planet or all these other things. We think, you know, paganism means this. And there are people who certainly even embrace that name who do those sorts of things and associate with those kind of things. But here Jesus actually has a definition that I think hits a lot closer to home for many people in our culture and even in the church. And it's basically this worrying, running after all these things that you need, what you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink, where you will live, running after all those things, Jesus says, is living like a pagan. In in essence, he's saying there are two different ways to live. You can trust yourself or you can trust your heavenly Father. Trusting yourself, in particular, often masquerades itself. It often hides itself. We often, we often are more conscious of our worry than we are of the way that we're trusting ourselves. And yet Jesus says worrying is a symptom of trusting yourself. Why is that? Well, I think it's, it's actually pretty, pretty simple. I, you know, I work with college students, and in the summer, and even during the school year, particularly in the summer, a lot of students have to go back home and take really, really menial kinds of jobs to get money to come back to school. The kinds of jobs that they really are way overqualified for. Retail jobs or waiting or, you know, and nothing demeaning if you're a waiter. I was a waiter for a while and moved to Nashville. Seems like everybody probably has been. But there's something about taking a job that's just boring because you're overqualified for it. Your gifts and your talents and your abilities are really way more than this job that you're having to take. And that's a drag. It's really a bummer, and it's hard to persevere in those kind of jobs. And yet I'll tell you, it's death to have to go to work every day for a job that you can't possibly do. It's one thing 
to go to work every day and be asked to do something that you can do without even thinking about it and to be bored out of your skull. It's a whole nother thing to every day have to go into work and know that you can't possibly do the job that you're called to do. And what I wanna tell you and what Jesus is trying to tell us here is that worry is always a symptom of the fact that you are trying to take on a job that you can't possibly do. You weren't created to run the universe. And no matter how tempting it is to try to control your world, you know that you weren't made for it. You're not qualified. I'm not qualified. And you know, what's fascinating is, you know, Jesus shows us here that worry is always, in some ways, a a realistic and true response to the fact that we are taking on something we can't possibly do. We know in our heart of hearts that we can't possibly add a single day to our lives by worrying. And this is fascinating. What Jesus is doing here actually is something you see all through the Bible, but I don't know if we realize it, but it's, it's one of the most important concepts we can understand if we want to know what it means to grow as a Christian or even what it means to be a Christian. And it's this, Jesus is out to have, he's basically out to attack your desire and compulsion to take care of yourselves. And, and the way that he does this is, is actually a two-pronged attack. He always is going after us in two, in two ways that are connected together, and it's this. At one level, he's going to expose that the things that we're trusting in can't possibly take care of us. And then, at the same time, he's going to reveal that God has already given us what we're trying to get from these things we're trusting in. When the Bible wants to talk about misplaced trust, it uses a concept called idolatry. And I suspect you've heard that idea before. (laughs) Yeah, I suspect. Um, I was looking at some of the quotes in the bulletin. I saw a Tim Keller quote and a George Whitfield quote. And people that that use this concept and are hip to this concept a lot. And I I know Steve, and I've um, been involved in counseling couples along with him, and I, I know the kinds of things he says. So I know we're on the same page here, but I just wanna, want you to see that it's in this passage too. This idea that Jesus is saying, seek first the kingdom. Worry is, is, an empty, is an empty thing. It can't get you what you want. If you're trying to add a single day to your life, worry won't do it. If you're trying to guarantee that you will have enough to eat and enough to wear and all these kinds of things, worry can't do it because you can't do it. And it's hard for us to get that message, I think. Uh, I I think sometimes my heart and your heart is more in tune with Bart Simpson and his prayer than Jesus. You say, what does that mean? Uh, One of my favorite little moments from The Simpsons was when they all sit down to, to a meal and Bart prays, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Whoa. Now that's pretty bold. But often that's our heart's attitude. We feel like we have what we have because we've worked for it. Or we have what we have because we'd worried about it enough that we've been able to avoid all dangers or all opportunities where things might be taken away from us. But in reality, all of those are really 
symptoms of this basic heart disease, which is we trust ourselves more than we trust God. And so what Jesus does here is he shows us that that won't work. You can't add a single day to your life by worrying. And yet, it's really not enough for me to tell you that. In other words, if I said, okay, that we're done, amen, you would walk out of here and you may say, gosh, I really am trusting myself, so I need to quit that. But you won't really be helped. And Jesus knows that. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Bible never gives bare commands. The Bible never just says, do this. I know most people that think of this passage remember that Jesus said, do not worry and seek first the kingdom. We remember those things about this passage, but actually, if you count up the words given to commands and compare them to the words given to the the whole issue of who is our father and what is he like, the, the, the revelation of who he is and what he's like is lots more words than the commands. And yet we remember the commands. Why? Because in our heart of hearts, we would rather do things than to trust our Father. And again, you know, Jesus does give commands, but he never gives bare commands. The Bible never gives bare commands. And so while Jesus says, don't worry, seek first the kingdom, right alongside of it, he tells us something that can actually help us do that. And it's this, we have a Father A father who cares for us, who takes care of us, who has compassion on us, and one who recognizes that life is hard. Let me just show you this. You see, Jesus constantly in this section makes reference to our father. In some ways, if if you want (laughs) to get at this whole idea of of how well do I understand Christianity. There's a famous theologian, J.I. Packer, who says, if you want to know how much somebody actually understands Christianity and really gets what it's about and its message into their hearts and integrated into their life, just look at how much they make of the idea that God is their Father. How much that resonates with them, how much that is precious to them, is probably the best indication of how much the gospel has gotten into their heart. And so that's what Jesus focuses us on here. When he wants to tell us to not worry, to seek first the kingdom, he thinks the most important thing for him to tell us about who God is, is that God is our Father. This is really fascinating. But you know, it makes perfect sense. Because until you're convinced that God is for you, and that God is pleased with you, you can't possibly seek first his kingdom. There's a a little verse in the book of Hebrews that I love. It's in chapter 9. And it says, How much then will the blood of Jesus cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? This is an important verse because what what, what the book of Hebrews is saying is, until your conscience has been cleansed, By the blood of Jesus. That means not just that you've been made right with God by faith in Jesus and his blood, but that you actually, that it's actually functioned in such a way as to cleanse your conscience. In other words, that you know that because of the blood of Christ, you're right with God and that you stand before him clean and accepted. Until that reality is is functioning in your life in an experiential way, 
it is impossible for you to serve the living God. Serving God is impossible when you're trying to get him on your side by what you do. All the things that you do, they may be Christian things, but unless they flow out of this assurance that God is my father and that my conscience can be cleansed from these acts that lead to death by Jesus' blood, until that security and that assurance has come into your life, you can't serve God. Oh, you may be doing Christian things. You can go on mission trips. You can you know, sing praise songs, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. You can be a clanging cymbal, and you can give your body even to the flames. But if it's not a flowing out of love and assurance that God loves you, it's not serving God. It's trying to manipulate God. And I'll tell you, it's one of the reasons that so many people get frustrated with what they think is Christianity. Because they're constantly trying to please God They're failing miserably at it, and they just don't know where to go. And after a while, they just feel so beat up. Who wants to come to church and hear more and more about what they're supposed to do? Who wants to read the Bible if all you ever see is, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do that? Who wants to memorize this passage? Do not worry. Have anybody ever been able to quit worrying by the fact that Jesus says, don't worry? No, you you may actually start to worry about whether you're not worrying. (laughs) It's this catch-22, and the only way out of it is to be rescued. And what is the way that God rescues us? He reveals who He is. He's our Father. He takes care of us. And I love this part. He has compassion on us, and He understands that life is hard. I love that in verse 34. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think one of the ways that, that people who are trying to understand what Christianity is about get confused is way too many Christians try to pretend that what it means to follow Jesus is to pretend that everything is fine. I think we express that in the things we say. I think we express that in the songs we sing way too often. Where people walk into a room like this and they feel like, if I think life is difficult, I don't know if I fit in here. It should never be that way. Jesus tells us here that followers of his should be able to be free to confess what he himself says. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I love that Jesus knows that and he dignifies that struggle. There's a throne in heaven and it's occupied by a father who takes care of us, who has compassion on us, and who recognizes that life is hard. What does this mean? It means that we're not called to just tough it out on our own. Christianity is not a matter of you saying, okay, dang it, I'm really going to do it this time. A lot of people get confused by this idea of repentance. What does it mean to repent? You read a passage like this, a lot of people, especially who have been raised in church, and have heard about this idea that Christians are supposed to repent, will read this passage and say, oh, okay, you caught me. I'm not, I'm not trusting God. I'm worrying. I need to quit it. I need to repent. I need to tell God I'm sorry, and I need to promise that I won't do it anymore. We do that all the time. We think that, that repentance is saying, okay, God, I promise I'll never do this again. That's not actually what repentance is. Repentance is not asking God to forgive you based on your promise 
to not do it again. It's a good thing, because that won't really work. God is not in the habit of taking the word of liars. The fact is, you can't make a promise like that to God with any kind of integrity. You can't. But you don't need to. Now, one of my favorite passages that talks about this idea of, of repentance is in Isaiah chapter 30. It's a passage there. If you have a Bible, look at this real quick. And this is where we're going to look at this passage for a few minutes as we, as we transition here and are nearing the end. But I, I, wanna, I want you to see this passage. What the kind of this two-pronged attack on our idols, and in, in, um, in Matthew 6, it's really trusting ourselves that Jesus is saying that isn't going to work. It's empty. You have no power. You can't add a day to your life. Not only that, it doesn't make any sense in light of the fact that you have a father who cares for you, who takes care of you, who has compassion on you. But you see this same thing over and over and over again in the Bible. And one of the classic places in Isaiah chapter 30, and look at verse 15 of Isaiah chapter 30. It says this, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff out on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet... The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Do you see this same issue of trust? Now here, the imagery may be a little obscure. Let me explain to you what's going on. If you go back um, a a few verses, back to verse 1 of chapter 30, you find out the situation that's being addressed here. It says this, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. What's going on is that Israel is on the verge of being attacked by Assyria. They're the superpower to the north. Egypt is the superpower to the south. God has delivered Israel, his people, from bondage and slavery in Egypt, placed them in a land of their own. But now when they feel threatened by Assyria, where do they look? Where do they turn? Do they turn to God, the one who delivered them out of Egypt? No. They turn to Egypt. And they've made a military alliance with Egypt, which is a way of saying, God, we don't trust you to be our warrior. We really trust Egypt, but if you analyze it more closely, you find that they really trust their ability to make a negotiation with Egypt. In other words, they trust their ability to get Egypt's protection. They trust themselves. You find over and over and over again that all the sins in the Bible boil down to this, trusting ourselves rather than God. It may manifest itself differently in different places and different times, and it may manifest itself differently in your life than in my life, but it's the same heart issue. And yet you see the Lord is getting at this heart issue the same way. He's saying, this isn't going to work. And you go back to verse 15 and you you see what's going on here. He's telling them what you need is repentance, but repentance is equated with rest. Hebrew poetry 
does not work by rhyming like English poetry. What Hebrew poetry does is it, it'll put two different concepts side by side. And, and what it's saying is these two things are the same thing. So what, what this is saying is not that you need to repent and to rest, but that repentance and rest are the same thing. Quietness and trust are the same thing. So th- to understand repentance, you need to understand repentance is rest. This is the big, big problem. A lot of Christians have this idea of repentance that it's not rest, it's you needing to do something to get God on your side. It's you needing to quit doing something so that God will love you, so that God will bless you, or whatever. But here, you see, repentance and rest are the same thing. So is your life marked by rest? If it's not, if it's marked by worry, then you're not living a life of repentance. A life of repentance should be marked by rest, quietness, and trust. But their life is not marked by that. They're trusting in Egypt. And look at what it says in verse 16 and verse 17 will be the manifestation of trusting in something other than God. Irrational fear. The the picture here is you have an army of a thousand men and at the sight of one soldier you will all flee away. That's the picture here. That doesn't make any sense. And I would ask you, one of the most important diagnostic questions you can ask yourself as you're trying to uncover what's going on in my heart, what's the direction of my heart? Is your life filled with irrational fear and worry? You may not know what to do with that, but I would submit to you that that is often an expression of misplaced trust And therefore, it's not enough for you just to see it and to say, oh, I need to quit it. The only way that you're going to be able to quit trusting yourself and trust God is if he opens your eyes to see him as more beautiful and believable than whatever it is you think you need. And so that's what you get here, right, in verse 18. Again, you see, he exposes how ridiculous it is to trust in something besides God. I mean, this power, this strength that you think you can get Israel from trusting in Egypt, you don't need it. I'm the Lord, your warrior. As a matter of fact, the next three or four chapters of Isaiah are filled with this theme. God is your warrior. As a matter of fact, later in, in, in the book of Isaiah, God manifests this because when the Assyrian army is camped around Jerusalem, he sends the angel of death who in the middle of the night slays the entire Assyrian army. It's a pretty impressive demonstration that he can take care of them. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is is where the idea of being slain in the Spirit comes from. Except in the Bible, when people are slain by the Spirit, they don't get up again. They're dead. They're dead. It's in the book of Isaiah. And God is demonstrating, I am your warrior. I can take care of you. That what you're trying to get, here's the point, what you're trying to get through your idols, safety, security, you already have. Therefore, The key to being able to rest and to repent is gratefully remembering and adoring God for what he's already given you. Now you understand worship is actually the key to growing spiritually. It's actually the problem that we all have is worship, misdirected worship. It's not just that we do bad things. It's not just that we don't feel loved. It's that we worship something else. We trust something else rather than God. At the heart of hearts, Every one of us struggles with worship. 
But worship is also the solution. And so what Jesus does here, what God does here, is he opens our eyes and says, look, who is the Lord? The Lord is the one who longs to be gracious to you, who rises to show you compassion. And as I say, as it goes on and on, later in, this, in these next couple chapters, God reveals that there is one to whom we can come to for shade or for refuge. It's not Egypt. It's actually the man. And all the Bible commentators say this is a reference to the coming Messiah. And of course, in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, that all the promises that God has made, they are yea and amen in Christ. Ultimately, the reason that we can rest and repent, that we can live uh, a place in a place of quietness and trust is because Jesus has done what was needed to get God on our side. And so whatever we try to do to get God on our side, not only will it not work, not only will it fill our lives with worry, but it's, it's unneeded. Jesus has already done everything required for us to be able to rest. It's good news. But again, the key is for Jesus, God, to open our eyes to see him as more beautiful and believable. I'll put it this way in conclusion. I have three kids, seven, five, and three. And when Cooper, my oldest, was, I guess, about the time he was about three when, and four, you could begin to talk, talk with him. And his little brother had just gotten to the point where he could crawl around and actually take things. Um, often it would be just World War III because little brother would just come and grab something that older brother wanted. And I had to say, you know, well, Cooper, it's really not that difficult to deal with a baby. If he has something you want, all you have to do is pick up something else and wave it in front of him. <laughs> and he'll let go and grab hold of whatever it is you wave in front of him. And you know what, brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus is doing. He, he looks at us and he says, oh, you're trusting in things that are not really beautiful enough or powerful enough. But look at, look at me. Look at me. Open your eyes and see not only how empty it is, the, the things you trust in, but look at how beautiful and believable I am. Remember who I am. Praise me for who I am so that it begins to sink into your heart in such a way where you can, you can believe the reality that you are, if you have taken refuge in Jesus, you are safe and you are secure. Worship transforms us. We gather here on Sunday mornings, not just to, to fellowship together, not just to sort of check off on our checklist, hey God, you know, I got up early, it's a beautiful day, I could have been out, you know, playing frisbee golf or whatever it is you like to do. No, but I came here, so come on, cut me some slack. Give me what I want. You know, we all do that. No, the reason we come here is because we need our hearts to be taken aback again by how beautiful Jesus is. Marva Dawn, one of my favorite authors, tells this story about the revolution to overthrow communism in Czechoslovakia. It's often called the Velvet Revolution because unlike the, the revolutions to overthrow communism in so many other countries, not a bit of blood was shed. Not a bit of blood was shed. Uh, Václav Havel, who was the, the president, became the, the first president of the Czech Republic, who was also a playwright, which is interesting, we probably need more artists in charge of countries. But he, um, he, he was asked one time, how was it that the revolution ha happened in such a way, in such a powerful way, without any arms being taken up? And he said this, he goes, for years in Czechoslovakia, we had a parallel society 
where we told our stories, did our plays, sang our songs, told ourselves the truth over and over again so that we could go out in the streets of Prague and say to the communists, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. Brothers and sisters, worship is about that. We sing our songs, we tell our stories so that our eyes can be opened to see how beautiful Jesus is. We can go out into the streets and say to the world, I don't believe your lies anymore. I don't believe that my worth is based on what I can earn or what I can do or who I can get to like me. So we can say to our heart, heart, I don't believe your lies anymore, that I'm worthless unless I look like this or sing like this or do this or do that or don't do this or don't do that. And so it's vital that we worship the true and living God and that he open our eyes to see how beautiful he really is so that we can rest. Christianity is about rest. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the rest that we have in Jesus. And we pray even now as we sing as, uh, that, you would, that you would open our eyes, that we would see your beauty, that we would enjoy your beauty, that we would be able to rest and trust in your beauty. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.